0: Welcome to episode 71 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It's Monday, February 13th, 2017. It's Coach K's birthday. I'm now irritated and I'm your host this week, Sam Klein. I am joined, <laughs> as usual. I'm joined as usual by Donald Wine in Washington, D.C. Hey, happy birthday, Coach K.
1: 70 big ones. That's what's up. And Jason Evans in Atlanta.
2: You know, we should have figured out a way. We should have skipped a podcast along the way so that we could have done the 70th podcast on coach K's 70th birthday that is bad planning on our part.
0: Bye, yeah, you are you are correct. Um so we got we have a lot to get to today. Uh, our agenda kind of slowly built up over the last couple of days and I think now we have more individual topics to talk about than than we may have ever had before. So it is we're busy.
1: Gonna start, it is
2: busy busy yeah. busy.
0: We're going to start of course with the game Thursday night against North Carolina. Um, it was a it was a great game on ESPN. Uh, it was back and forth the whole way. Duke ended up pulling away at the very end uh, and winning by eight. So I'll start with Jason. Your impressions from a UNC game that was one of the most entertaining games I think we've seen this year as Duke fans.
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, for us, we go, wow, that was a ton of fun. What a fabulous game. And I'm sure Carolina fans are just beating their heads against the wall. They're really upset because it was a game that could have gone either way, although it really felt like, uh, I, I don't want to say Duke was in control, but you, you felt like Duke was the better team throughout most of this game, and, and we had the lead throughout most of the game. Um, I, I want to harken back to last week when we were each sort of saying our keys to the game, and I'm sure you guys will recall my key was rebounding, uh, and I pointed out that North Carolina is the best rebounding team in the country. They average like 44 rebounds a game, and they're the they're the second best offensive rebounding team in the country they averaged six i'm sorry 14 16 something like that 16 i think offensive rebounds per game well in this game carolina only got seven offensive rebounds they only got 30 total rebounds duke out rebounded them i want you to dwell on that for a moment duke out rebounded carolina 31 to 30. we had the same number of offensive boards as they did it is un. if you had told me in advance that that was going to happen I would have put tremendous amounts of money <laughs> on the Blue Devils to win the game. And that's what happened. Carolina usually grabs almost 45% of their misses on offense. They only grab 25% of them against Duke. And if you want a reason that we won... That's the biggest reason that we won. We controlled the boards. And then the other statistical thing that I saw that I really loved, and look, everyone's going to talk about, we had three guys who really lit it up on offense. We were great from three-point range, 13 of 27, 48% on our three-pointers. Both teams shot really, really well in this game. But the other thing I wanted to point out was I really loved our bench play. We got 37 minutes from Giles, Bolden, and Jackson. They combined to shoot seven of seven from the field. They got six rebounds, and they committed a grand total of one turnover, oh, and they had three block shots. And I thought Giles and Bolden both were at times intimidating on the inside. Now, now, look, I'm not ready to say that, you know, Duke has has the great bench that we thought they would at the beginning of the season. We are still bothered by injuries. We are still bringing guys along slowly. And there's no question that Giles and Bolden are not where anyone thought they would be. You know, when everyone was talking about top five picks, lottery picks, sure thing, first rounders. But they are rounding into form more and more. They're giving Duke quality minutes in each and every game. And and, and I love the trajectory of this team. Uh, and before I – I'll hand it over to Donald in one second. But I, I want you all to recall and think about one thing really quickly. Um, if you take out an insane, crazy loss to NC State that, that is absolutely inexplicable, that no one can figure out at this point when you look at the trajectory of the two teams – if you take that game out, Duke would currently be tied with Carolina. Actually, I guess we'd be ahead because we'd have the tiebreaker. We'd be 9-3 and three in the ACC. We'd be 20-4 and four overall, the only team in the ACC with uh, four or fewer losses. And I'm convinced we would still be in the top 10, and everyone would still be talking about Duke as a very, very, very likely national title contender. It's sort of like one game has skewed a lot of our view, and we're gradually beginning to return to the normalcy of Duke being one of the top teams in the country. All right, enough of that. Hey, Donald, what what you love about this Carolina game?
1: Look, I'm going to start out with this. Uh, if you are a neutral observer, you probably uh, saw a lot of the hoopla behind this game, and you're probably tuning in thinking, okay, you know, Duke is was supposed to be number one in the country. They're supposed to be the best team, and they have had a down year this uh, so far this year by Duke standards. North Carolina is this team that you know was pretty good, but they really haven't been lighting the world on fire lately and why should I be watching this game? If you watch this game Thursday night as a neutral observer, that was a damn great game to watch. I, I, I mean, just take out the stats, take out everything like we said last week. This was a game to watch. It was a game that went back and forth, even though it kind of felt, I don't want to say comfortable, because there's never a comfortable lead against North Carolina. This game had everything in it. It had rebounding, it had great play, it had uh, people shooting the ball well had great defense at times they had some highlight moments uh Kennedy Meeks rest in peace um like those sort of things are what make basketball great to watch and we had all of that and more in this game so I think just from a from a watching standpoint this was one of the better games of college basketball this year to watch and I thought it was great that we um that we ended up on the winning side of things because I think that was a really big confidence builder for uh this team I think the one thing I look at when the stats, first of all, I think, like you said, that Harry Giles and Frank Jackson, Frank Jackson did very great off the bench. Uh, that is something that has been sorely needed over the last couple of weeks, and I think that's something that we got from them. Luke Kennard was excellent. Grayson Allen was excellent. Jason Tatum was excellent. Uh, Emil Jefferson, even though he only had two points, I thought he, I thought the stats were lying when it told you know how well he kind of played. I think. He was really good at quarterbacking the defense, especially when we had some of these small runs that kind of ended up being the difference in the game. He was really instrumental with that. Him and Matt Jones, their defense and their quarterbacking on defense is what got everybody to calm down after the kind of frantic first couple minutes and get everybody settled in into playing basketball.
2: You, you know, we, we gave up 78 points, but I thought we played one of our better defensive games of the year. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I, we had, I, I we had six block and,
0: shots. And add that. Go ahead, Jason.
2: No, no, I was going to say we had six block shots, which is a lot for a Duke team, and especially against a Carolina team that that is long, has some pretty good size, and and typically doesn't have a lot of shots blocked. Go, go ahead, Sam. Your your turn to chime in on a very very fun game.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I think that it was exactly as you said. We gave up a lot of points, but at the same time, the defense played really well. And North Carolina, uncharacteristically made a lot of shots from the mid range and from outside that I don't think you see them normally make. So even though you know, even though they, they outperformed in that way, that's kind of the way you have to beat North Carolina and, and we attack them inside. We as you mentioned, we were able to somehow um, end up with the positive rebounding margin, which I think very few opponents have against UNC this year. And the thing that I had talked about in the preview, if we're if we're gonna go back and, and review our our previews, um, was that Duke needed to be able to slow down um, that passing game, needed to be able to slow down Carolina in transition. And as I said, most of their points were coming from outside and were coming out of, out of sort of set plays. There wasn't a lot of that, that Carolina transition offense that everyone is so used to getting beaten up by. We didn't, we didn't suffer that. We didn't suffer from that based on, uh, based on the rebounding margin, and that's really where a lot of UNC's points come from. You know, they, they get out in transition, and they're able to get the offensive rebounds and put them back, and there was really not much of that. Obviously, missing Isaiah Hicks didn't help them, but um, even with the guys they did have, I think that UNC is, as we know, certainly capable of beating this Duke team. They have a lot of power inside, and Duke was able to neutralize all that. The other two things I wanted to throw at you guys that I thought were interesting, if you just knew about this game, that Emil Jefferson uh, scored, what, two points and was saddled with foul trouble most of the game, and Grayson Allen fouled out with a little over a minute left, you knew those two things about a particular Duke game, especially a Duke game against a really good opponent. You would think that Duke isn't able to weather that, and Allen fouling out with a minute left against a good team probably means that he's working too hard, and then we don't have that minute for him to for him to shine at the end. Um, but that wasn't even the case. I mean, he came out, and it was still like a three- or four-point game, but as you guys said, it felt like Duke was kind of in control those last few minutes. So I, I was really impressed with the way the Blue Devils were able to control – the the rebounding game as we talked about and um, and that they made UNC shoot from outside and even though like like you said Jason even though they scored 78 points uh, really great defensive effort from Duke and and I don't think either of you mentioned um, Bolden's really ferocious block and steal right that was that oh was that, was game
2: game. that was sweet
0: that was sweet you know Donald can talk all you want about about uh, about the death of Kennedy Meeks at the hands of Jason Tatum's slam but I think that that Bolden's block and steal was my favorite highlight of the game.
1: I can get with that. I can definitely get behind that.
2: It it was way up Um, there. Yeah, no, go ahead. (laughs) I I was going to say, um, you know, it's, it's funny. When you look at statistics, you you talked about, you know, Jefferson only had two points, Grayson Allen fouled out, uh, uncle Matty at Matt Jones only had three points. Um, and and when you look at stats, there's so many other stats that point to a different result than what happened. You know, Carolina. do You guys know Carolina only turned the ball over five times in that game. That's really impressive. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean that is really impressive. They considering the pace that they play at. Um, uh, you know, Sam, I think you were talking about what an impressive passing team they are. Uh, they're they're really they they did a great job of controlling the ball. It was as you gentlemen said a an incredibly well played game. We were fortunate to get to watch it, and fortunate to be the team that came out on top. And and we're in great shape now. I think in the ACC, um, I'm not certain. I haven't looked at all the tiebreakers, but I think we're pretty close to controlling our own fate at this point, um, which is all you can really ask. You know, with six games or so left, are, are we about to move on to Clemson? Yes. I, I get the sense we are, huh?
0: Yes, I, I I was about to move to Clemson, which which I don't think is going to be as happy of a discussion, although <laughs> um, although hopefully we can we can wash the concerns away. <laughs> So Duke, after playing Thursday night against UNC and having the bonfire and all these things, uh was up early on Saturday for a one PM matchup against Clemson and as I think a lot of Duke fans maybe foresaw, this had a little bit of that of that trap game in it, right? North Carolina on Thursday night, Clemson about 36 hours later with a game against uh, against UVA, one of the top teams in the conference, coming up this week, and we'll talk about that soon. But you could see Duke being uh, prone to overlooking this Clemson team. And sure enough, it was a close game all the way through. Clemson actually had a shot at the end um, to win the game. Duke only won by two points. Donald, is this is there anything concerning from the Clemson game that you think can't be chalked up to, well, they were tired and emotional from the game against North Carolina?
1: I think that has a lot to do with it. I don't know if it, I, I'm not going to go and say that it was 100% the reason. Uh, I mean, it was a letdown uh, defensively is a letdown kind of uh, emotionally and, and just, just the fire that we saw against UNC just wasn't there. Now I do think that a lot of it probably was, you know, guys were tired. Guys were, you know, just physically and emotionally mentally needing to get back to square one after that game. Uh, but I mean, we can't, Blame all of that on them. I think Clemson came out ready to play. Uh, there was a part in the second half where Clemson was just on fire. They were hitting everything. The momentum was clearly on their side and they weren't going away. And there was a point where even, you know, we were up, I believe like seven or eight, they hit a couple of shots and they never gave up. So, you know, credit to them for coming out and and trying to, you know, be that trap and, and kind of sneak in um, and do it. But I, I think the the onus was on our guys to really say, hey, look, that game is done. We, we, we faced a huge team in Carolina and came back and won, or, and that is now in the rear view, and we have to focus on Clemson. Clemson did a great job in, in forcing our hand and making us play basketball uh, all the way down to the end. Uh, but I think in the end, uh, we, ha- we did just enough to win, and we had Luke Kennard, um with 25 points, who really was the difference for our side uh, in the victory.
0: Jason, are yeah. you concerned at all about about Coach K? Now, this is a topic that, of course, we revisit constantly as Duke fans. But are you concerned about Coach K's use of the bench in the second half against Clemson?
2: Ah, uh, you got a big sigh from me on that one. Uh, you know, I know, I, I know. I, I would. That, that was. I would. That's,
0: that was the reaction I was going for.
2: <laughs> I. I would like for him to use the bench a little bit more. Um, I, you know, I thought Harry Giles, especially, had some really nice minutes in the first half, and he played very, very sparingly in the second half. Um, uh, Marquis Bolden, you know, didn't didn't play at all in the second half, and and really didn't get a lot of time in the first half. Now, I mean, part of that was I think um, Clemson wasn't. I mean, Clemson they were beating us inside, and and, and I guess. I don't know. I guess Coach K was worried about how we do rebounding wise because Emil Jefferson is a better rebounder than either of those guys. Um, I I I would like for him to find ways to work those guys in more and more and more. Um, But I'm not Coach K. I'm I'm not gonna, you know, for us to be questioning his rotations and and it seems it seems pretty silly. Um, We're not at practice. Uh, We don't. We're not with these guys we spend two hours with them every game and he spends 10 times that much time watching them, evaluating them. And um, if he thinks that Bolden, you know, only plays two minutes against Clemson, that's his prerogative. I'm I'm just not gonna, I'm not going to get in the way of it. But I mean, one of the things in that Clemson game was they were, they were better than us on the inside. They were terrible from the perimeter. Um, they were not a good shooting team and they took a lot of bad shots and their you know their hope the reason they hung with us for a while was largely because you know they were getting a decent number of offensive rebounds and and they were um, they were doing a nice job thomas was doing a really nice job on the interior of getting good deep position and and making some shots in there um I, you know this was one of those games I, I was saying to donald right before we got on the podcast it seems weird to say this in a game that where they had the ball with five seconds left, four seconds left, um, down two, so theoretically with a chance to hit a three pointer to win it all, I never really was all that worried. Even when they were, you know, cutting into the lead in the second half and the such, I just sort of went, We are so clearly better than them, and they are so challenged offensively. They're they're just not a good team on offense. That I was like, they're not gonna be able to get there. They're not gonna Yeah,
0: and they, they're not gonna get it done. They, they, didn't get, they didn't even get a, a, a decent look. Oh, it was
2: horrible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's unforgivable that that their inbounds play took them back toward our basket. um, Four and a half seconds left or something like that. I forget the exact. It was 4.3, 4.7, whatever it was on that last play. And the moment they inbounded the ball, headed back toward, you know, our free throw line. I was like, "Well, they're going to throw up a. De- I mean, there's there's no chance to get anything but a absolute desperation, horrible shot at that point. And they didn't even really get the shot off because Matt Jones sort of knocked it out of his hands. Um, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to blame the Clemson coaching staff. Maybe they couldn't get anything else. But God, if you get, how could you not get something inside the three point line or a good look from three? It was just it was poor execution. That, that play basically. That play is something you
1: run when you are tied with 15 seconds left in the game and and you know that you can do whatever you want, and the worst that happens is you force overtime. And they had, like, five seconds left. They had, I mean, if you look at the stats, they had 13 second-chance points and they had 34 points in the paint. So their play was to inbound the ball where the point guard's catching it 75 feet away from the basket they need to score on to reach overtime or win the game. Uh, that's bad planning um and i think that I, I don't know what they were thinking with that play um but i i don't want to i don't want them to, to want him to say that it comes down to one play but that was questionable uh coaching i, I don't so, by the way i don't whatever know whatever
2: that. You call it i don't know that that was their i think that was sort of the safety valve on that play yeah you know i think i think they uh you know it looked to me like they initially looked for something in the front court and then they had to go in the back court because they uh they couldn't get anything in the front court but god you got to you just got to find a way. But
1: even in those uh, plays, the, the safety valve is – the way they draw these plays up, even the safety valve is put in a position that they can do something. Like, again, if you the safety valve, you pop a safety valve up to 75 feet away from your own basket, that means that you have time. That's time they didn't have. And I think that's why he had to come down and force a shot that didn't even – barely left his hands before it was out of bounds. So I think that is – that's not what the play was supposed to be. I think something either executed wrong or they drew up the wrong play.
2: You know, one thing I and want to point out from that-,
0: that that play, I was going to say that I think that the Hail Mary might have been more effective, or had a, like a better chance of succeeding for them than what they did.
2: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, one thing I want to point out from the game, um, I thought, I thought Duke did a really nice job of moving the ball around. Um, you know, it wasn't a good offensive game. Look, we scored sixty-four points. It's like one of our lowest outputs of the season. I haven't looked. It might be our lowest output of the season. Um, we haven't played Virginia yet, but <laughs> um but we had well, thirteen assists. Yeah, yeah, right. We had thirteen assists on twenty one baskets. That's a great percentage. Um, and I thought Grayson Allen, you know, in a game where he was really struggling, um, he was just two of ten from the field. Uh Grayson had five assists and there were a couple of assists he had that were really pretty. Um uh, you know that led to you know very easy, very easy shots for us um, at times when we really needed it. Um, uh, I, I like that in a game where you know we were struggling a little bit to find an offensive rhythm, we were able to to uh, have our passing uh, help us out and get some key baskets. Um, but it's like you guys said, we 36 hours after the Carolina game. I mean, I'm amazed these guys were even able to get out there and give any effort at all. Um, and they just barely gave effort, but <laughs> they gave enough to win. So now we're 8-4 and four in the ACC, and, uh, you know, it's anybody's conference.
0: So let's look ahead then. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the games this week. There are two games. Uh, one against on the, the second one is on Saturday against a Wake Forest team that we've already seen. The first game is against Virginia, who the last two years under Tony Bennett has been one of the most consistent in the conference. Um, Jason, I, I think you told us that you watched most of or a good chunk of that Virginia-Virginia Tech game. Do you want to want to run down kind of what you saw? Because Virginia Tech was able to to steal one in overtime against Virginia, and not many teams have gotten to do that this year. So you want to talk us w- about, about what Virginia Tech did and how it might translate?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um I, I was I'll tell you something when Virginia Tech won that game, I was surprised because um Virginia was the better team and uh I, you know, I credit the home court to really helping Virginia Tech win win that contest. Um the thing I the thing I took away from watching that game and I've seen Virginia play a few other times this year. Uh, um when he wants to and it's surprising cuz he doesn't want to all that often. When he wants to, London Perantis can get to the rim against virtually anyone, and um, he is incredibly adept uh, with either hand um, at, at at finishing, you know, at the rim and in the lane. Uh, and and to me, that's going to be the biggest key for Duke uh, down the stretch against Virginia Tech. Every time Virginia needed a basket, almost without fail, they went to Perantis. Uh, the few times they did something different than that, it didn't work. Um, uh, there was a, an interesting moment before the ACC season began. Virginia, for a long time, didn't have anyone averaging double digits, which is something that just, you know, naturally, uh, on every team, you, you end up with someone scoring double-digit points. And coming into ACC play, Parantis led the team with about 9.7 points per game. and And there was some talk that, oh, my gosh, could this be, you know, sort of the first time in forever that an ACC team went – all season without having anyone average double digits. Um, Parancis has lifted his scoring average uh, to 12.6 points per game at this point. Um, I want you to think for a moment about how much he's got to score to lift it from less than 10 to almost 13. Uh, He's averaging more than 15 points per game in in ACC play. Um, And he has really, I mean, he is a senior guard. He is their floor leader. And he has taken on more and more and more responsibility offensively for them. Um, and uh, you know that's that's how they are succeeding at this point uh, I, this Virginia team is built on defense and they don't need to score a lot to win um they are an exceptional defensive team as they have been for years we're not saying anything new they're actually probably a little bit worse this year than they've been in the past they're not as good protecting the rim um Isaiah Wilkins is their shot blocker and he, he actually did he is he's only six seven but he has incredibly long arms. Um, he, he did a really nice job against Virginia Tech uh, he had a couple key key blocks um and, and you know and and if not blocks you know altering a shot late in that game um, that, that almost lifted Virginia to to the victory um they're not quite as good protecting the rim they're not quite as good rebounding as they have been in years past uh, but they are still uh, an exceptional defensive team um they play that pack line defense which means uh they're you know they sort of stay a step off of you so it's hard to drive around them but they are long and they're very quick and they're good at closing out on you, so it's difficult to get off a three-pointer. Um, it's a tough defense to learn, but they play it exceptionally, exceptionally well. Um, they are also an incredibly deep team. Um, this is a team that plays 10 guys double-digit minutes, and Perantis is the only guy who plays more than 30 minutes. Basically, everyone else on the team plays between, you know, 11, 12, and like 25, 26 minutes or so. Um, and, and as a result of that, um, there's no you can't sort of look at one guy and say that's the guy we have to other than prantis that's the guy we have to stop um or or you know this is a guy that, that that changes the game in this way or that way. They just have a lot of guys who do a lot of different things um and and they're a really, really challenging team um, I, it, it's going to be a a very, very tough contest for Duke. It's always hard to win at Virginia um I, I'll tell you one thing that I take a little bit of solace from is I don't feel like they're playing great unbelievable basketball right now um they lost uh just a few days ago uh, about a week week and a half ago they lost at syracuse um they just lost to virginia tech uh now both those games were on the road uh and and obviously road versus home um but but i I give duke a, a a decent chance in this in this contest um uh and a victory here would make a huge huge impact on the acc standings um, you know, Virginia is tied with Duke at eight and four in the conference. Um, North Carolina sits there at nine and three. Uh, the winner of this game is going to have an excellent chance to win the ACC. Both Duke and Virginia still have to play Carolina. Um, so, uh, so this would be a, a a huge, huge game if we could pull it out. Um, we will need to shoot well from the outside because you're not going to get a lot inside against Virginia. It's just almost impossible to. Donald, you got anything?
0: Even more so than against UNC.
2: Yeah, yeah, I th- I think I think they are better um uh interior defense uh Virginia um than than UNC is. They're not as big as Carolina. They're not as good a rebounding team as Carolina, but they're so long. They help so well. Um Isaiah Wilkins has great timing on on his uh jumping to block shots and such. Um yeah, I think it's going to be it's 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 just plain hard to score on Virginia. That's just the bottom line. It is really hard okay. to score on them. Yeah, right, I know. And the
0: game and the game is at John Paul Jones Arena, so it has the the added uh challenge of being on the road in the ACC. Yep. Uh Donald, was there anything you wanted to add about Virginia? I don't know if you've gotten to uh gotten to watch them recently.
1: I have uh I think the one thing I want to mention is this. I if you recall two years ago, um when we went to John Paul Jones Arena to face, I guess it was then number 5 uh UVA we, you know, we had just come off of losing uh, or Rashid Suleiman was just kicked off the team. And that file like 48 hours later, we traveled to face them in a big time Saturday uh, night matchup and pulled out the victory. And it was one of the things that was the catalyst uh, behind us uh, going on to winning the national championship. This is one of those games that, you know, Virginia doesn't match up well with us. I don't think I I, I don't think it's a, a good Uh, I don't know how to say this. I don't think it's a good matchup for us in the sense that we love getting out. We love scoring. And this is a team that likes to slow down the game. But I think that might play to our advantage because I think if we play smart, if we play each individual possession and try to maximize what we get out of each possession, then this team can be beat. And I think we can actually win pretty handily if we do that. Uh, But if we, force-up shots, if we play into their defense, um, which is very suffocating, then I think the is going to be for a long night. And the thing about this game is that if we can get some momentum, if we can get uh, like a couple points lead, this crowd will be taken out of it. And I think – and that's not saying anything bad about uh, the JPJ crowd. I think that when we have these kind of leads and we have these kind of big-time games – UVA expects to win this game. We expect to win this game. And if we can come out and play with some intensity and be smart on the with the ball on offense, then that's going to be a very good thing for us. And I think that is going to be the key for his victory. Smart play, taking care of the basketball, and getting great minutes out of everyone who plays. At this point, it doesn't matter if we only have eight players playing. If they're all going to play very smart, they're going to play well and play within ourselves, then we're going to win this game. You yeah, know, by the
2: way, way, one helps, thing I to remember.
0: That, oh, I was going to say it, it. It helps that um, because the pace is slower when you play Virginia. There are probably fewer opportunities for Virginia's depth to beat you, just in terms of like Duke's not going to foul, not going to have multiple guys foul out of the game because there aren't that many possessions.
2: Right. Yeah. But so speaking of that, Ken Pomeroy, there are three hundred and fifty-one teams in Division One. Ken Pomeroy, three hundred and fifty-one. Ken Pomeroy says Virginia plays with the three hundred and fiftieth slowest pace. So, and yet, uh, <laughs>
0: and yet they're ranked. They're ranked what in Ken Pomeroy? Number
2: two. Number, number two. two. Who's slowest? Uh, oh, that's a great question. Let's check the tempo. Slower than Virginia, Saint Mary's. Huh. Also who just a good lost, team. Also yeah, a good team, just, yeah. Yeah. Ranked team who's just uh, who just lost to. Um, gonzaga and what everyone thinks is the last game gonzaga could possibly uh, lose this year so uh before we get done with uh, virginia really quickly um i i, I, I so duke I, I mentioned you know we only scored 64 points against clemson i looked that was our lowest scoring output of the year 64 points um virginia tech scored 80 yesterday but they they had two overtimes they were in the low to mid 60s at the end of regulation here are the point totals of virginia's most recent opponents Um, And then think about the fact that Duke always, this season so far, has scored at least 64 points. Their opponents scored 55, 66, 48, 61, 54, 49, 54. That's over the past, what, you know, eight games or so. Um, Basically, it's almost impossible to reach even 60 points against this Virginia team. Um, So uh, uh, it'll be very interesting to see um if they can hold Duke down if if the games if the game is in the 50s or low 60s you know that's where Virginia wants it to be if it gets to 70 I think you have to like Duke's chances a lot
0: yeah that's a that's a great point and and we'll see if Duke's able to to maybe pick up the pace a little bit against them although as you say it's it 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 can be a challenge uh so is that it for previews guys can we can we move on to all the other stuff we want to talk about this week
2: Absolutely. Let's do it. So
1: uh,
0: we mentioned, la- I think Jason mentioned last week that um, we'd be happy to answer folks' questions if they if they wanted to submit them either on the forum or, or sending us a uh, private message. Uh, so we did get one question this week, and I wanted to read it because I thought it was a really good question. Uh, the The... The listener who asked it is named Stephen, and Stephen sent, sent Jason a really nice long note, uh, but I wanted to pull the relevant sections out and read them back to you, and then we can uh, sort of talk about this. So Jason says that he, he grew up not uh, – he didn't go to Duke. It doesn't sound like anyone from his family went to Duke. Uh, he says, I've been a Duke fan for over 26 years now. I'm originally from Alabama, not North Carolina, so I didn't grow up in a pick Duke U, Duke U, Duke or UNC town. My story is that my dad had tickets to the 91 Final Four and told me, hey, let's cheer for this underdog team, Duke. So I did, and then after Leitner hit the shot the next year, I was sold. I was 10 years old in 1992. So my obsession grew, but I didn't put a Duke for undergrad. Skipping down, uh, just to point out throughout his life, he's had no tangible connection to the Duke program. Um, So I have a couple of questions. What do alumni think of non-alumnus Duke fans? I feel that I am quite a rabid, loyal fan. Ask my cat, Wojo, et cetera, et cetera. My educational path never led me to Duke, but my fandom started way before that. The other question is, is there something I should say to others when they ask, oh, you didn't go to Duke? You may be thinking that I'm just a crazy poser, but I respect your opinion and really wanted to hear from a source with some real street cred. So uh, Donald, what can Steven say to, to other college basketball fans when he talks about his Duke fandom?
1: So I have an interesting perspective in this, and and thank you, Stephen, for the question. My perspective is this, I was born and raised in Michigan. I was born and raised a Michigan fan. I was not a Duke fan until uh, my friend Shane Battier, friend of the podcast, uh, ended up going to Duke and I started following his career and, and starting to learn more about the school as I was going through high school. So I was born, raised, trained to go to Michigan. I went to Michigan football games. Uh, I went to Michigan basketball games. I was. I went to school within a stone's throw of the campus. Went to Michigan hockey games. I was involved with the Michigan program. I didn't go to Michigan, and a lot of people think that because I didn't go to Michigan, I shouldn't be a Michigan fan. They call they call some of these people Walmart Wolverines. And and the reason why I relate that to this is we're a small school. We only have sixty six hundred undergrads. We have about the same number of grad students and. Not everyone's going to go to Duke for for whatever reason, whether it's you know they didn't get in, they couldn't you know afford it, they got a scholarship to play somewhere else, or to or to attend school somewhere else, and they took that, um, or if they just decided they didn't want to go, they just want to remain a, a fan of the university. I think that is fine. There's a lot of people who like to say that because they went to the school, they're a better fan than anyone who didn't go to the school. But I'm not about to say that somebody who's been a lifelong fan for 30, 40 years is any better or any worse than someone who paid to go to school for four. Um, and I think that's the same way I, I you know my Michigan friends tell me that all the time about my fandom for Michigan uh, and football and I tell them, look I you know over over 34 years I've invested tens of thousands of dollars into the University of Michigan. That is not going to replace. Uh, or, or you know, be compared to anyone who paid for four years of school. And I'm not about to have anybody question my fandom because they went to the school and I didn't. Um, you can only go to one undergrad unless you transfer. Um, And I think that is uh, something that a lot of people kind of get up in arms over and they shouldn't. I, I think if you're a fan of the school, if you grew up a fan of the school, if you became a fan of the school, that is, I, I love that. We need more of that. And I think that's the reason why, I mean, if you think about Duke UNC, UNC has millions of fans. Ain't none of them, half of them go to UNC. And it's the same thing for us. Like, I think that is the – what makes the rivalry great is that there's so many fans – not just that went to the school that really lived the rivalry for four years, but they're people who live in Durham, live in, North, in, in Chapel Hill, live in these parts of North Carolina where they pick one or the other. Or they live somewhere else and they grew up watching Jordan, they grew up watching Shane Batty and Christian Leitner and Grant Hill and, and all the stars that come from these two teams. There's no reason why those people aren't as good of fans, if not better fans than some of the people that went to the school. So I think that's my perspective. Uh, Jason, what do you think about that?
2: I, I think you can be a fan of the style. You can be a fan of the players. You can be a fan of the coach. You could fall in love with the colors. It doesn't really matter to me. Uh, I, as someone who went to Duke, um, I have no problem at all, and i don't I don't have a lack of respect for folks who say they're big fans of Duke who never attended the school. Uh, the The notion that the notion that there are lesser fans because they didn't go to Duke to me is abhorrent and wrong. And 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 it, it doesn't match with the number of people out there who, who watch Duke games and who are passionate about Duke basketball. Some of the biggest fans who have season tickets in Cameron are folks who didn't go to Duke. Uh, I'm, I am I may be wrong. I think that Herb, what's his name, Crazy Towel Guy, who is like really, really, really well-known as a Duke fan, didn't attend Duke. Isn't that right, guys? I'm not sure. Y'all don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I feel like I've heard that before. I yeah. know for a fact I know for a fact that the number one, biggest, most important Duke website, the Duke basketball report, the guy who runs the DBR, Julian King, did not attend Duke. Now his parents um worked at Duke and, and uh you know, he's got a long connection to the school for that reason, but the notion <laughs> the notion that Julian King is less of a Duke fan because he didn't attend the school is insane there there may be no bigger duke fan on the planet um it 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 doesn't make any sense to me and you know part of steven's question was you know what do i say to people if they go oh you didn't go there i think you simply say yeah but i'm still a a huge fan i've been following them since i was whatever age Uh, you know I, i i love his story that you know when Christian Laettner hit the shot in 1992 that he had gone to the Final Four in '91 and rooted for them, and then Laettner hit the shot in '92 and he went, "That's it. That's my team. That, I'm fine with that." <laughs> you tell me that story, your bona fides are sold. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done. And 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 I love that we have fans like that. Uh, it would be terrible if <laughs> if we only had fans among the 6,000 or so kids who actually attend Duke because believe it or not, there are a lot of people who attend Duke who aren't fans of Duke basketball um you know they 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 just don't get caught up in in the athletics side of of the university environment and think Um, about the parents like think
1: about the parents of these kids too like my dad was not a duke fan until i went to duke now he's one of the biggest fans in the world he's calling me asking how does he get games on acc network when he lives in texas like my my parents are watching the games as religiously as i am neither of them went to duke but they're now duke fans so i'm look they paid money to the, to the school. They, they helped me get an education. And if that's their reason for supporting the team, that's awesome. If if their reason is because they have a friend that went there or a, or, or a cousin or anybody, that's fine too. I think there's a, a number of reasons why people should root for Duke. And going to school is like just one of those hundred reasons.
2: Yeah. Uh, to me, well, the biggest yeah. one is... I was going to say, really quick, to me, the biggest one would be admiring Coach K, admiring the kind of person he is, the way he teaches basketball, his ethics. Um, uh, this is an easy team, in my opinion, to become a fan of because there's a sense that they do things right um, and that they play hard. Um, and, you know, all, all the all the attributes that you would say you would want to design in a program, I think Duke, uh, Duke has pretty much all those boxes checked. Sam?
0: I was going to just add that, you know, When you're talking about pro teams, there are only 30 or so pro teams in each of the major sports in the U.S., Um, but in in college basketball and to a lesser extent college football, there are so many teams, and while that's the case, and so, yeah, you can have, you know, if you grew up in Alabama like like Stephen did, maybe you can be an an Alabama basketball fan or an Auburn basketball fan or maybe Georgia, whatever, you know, whatever team is, is nearby, but you know, the, the best teams in college basketball and college football are usually, it's usually the same group of teams every year. So, um, I, I don't think I'd begrudge anybody from saying, all right, well, I, like that my favorite college basketball team is just going to be one of these teams that's always competitive. So at least I have rooting interest at the top. Um, and, and like I, the, the way that, and, and you guys know, I'm a, I'm a great Duke football fan. I love Duke football. Um, but I don't begrudge, you know, Duke people, Duke students, Whoever, if they say, all right, well, for a long time Duke football was was nothing worth rooting for. So I followed my hometown, you know, Ohio State Buckeyes or or Texas Longhorns or whoever whoever that team may be. Um, because it is fun to root for the teams that are that, that have a chance every year. And in pro sports, you know, other than maybe the Cleveland Browns, um, everybody kind of has a shot every year because because you never know what's going to happen. And there aren't that many teams um, in college. It seems like it's it's the same guys every year. So I, I don't think it's a problem um, for non-alums or people who aren't connected with the school to like them. And as as you said, Jason, there aren't that many people that go to Duke. So if Duke is going to be as as powerful of a brand in college basketball and in college sports as it is, uh, it relies on the support of people who didn't go to the school because from a numbers perspective, Duke is never going to compete with Michigan for, for eyeballs if we're only talking about people with official affiliations to the university.
1: And if you think about uh, just who watched the game, uh, you know, I think they said 3.4 million people watched the game on TV. And I think it was Duke basketball that mentioned this, that it was the most streamed game on ESPN ever uh, with over like 250,000 streams on like ESPN, watch ESPN and ESPN three. So if you take that- There can't be more than what, like 100,000 Duke alumni? There's like 150,000 Duke alumni. Period, like yeah. in the world. So, if you think about it, if you divide that half, there is about two, you know, two, two, three million people who are watching this game that aren't fans of the university but are watching the game. So uh, right. that you can't have you can't have these ratings if people who aren't interested, who have no affiliation to these schools, aren't watching.
2: I can't believe there are only one hundred fifty thousand Duke alumni in the world. I, that makes sense. You know, when you think about the number, you know, 2,000 kids per class, a little less than 2,000 kids in a class, and, you know, no one lives forever (laughs) and such, but, God, if you'd asked me, you know, don't think, just pull a number out of a hat, I would, the number I would have pulled out would have been much higher than that. Right.
0: Yeah. So, there you go. So, uh, thanks again to Steven for the question. That was was really cool. And, again, if you want to send us uh, questions to talk about on the podcast, we always welcome them. Um, But... The only lines of communication are via the Duke Basketball Report Forum. So if you're not on there and you want to ask a question, go ahead, sign up for an account, check out the discussion threads, and then you can send any of us a message either publicly or or via the private message service. Let's, uh, Let's move on to our player of the week discussion as we we do every week we pick one player as our player of the week. I think there are a couple guys you could go with this week. So, Jason, I'll start with you. Who is your player of the week for the games against UNC and Clemson?
2: You ready for this? You're going to be surprised. I'm going off the All board. Right. Uh I really thought Frank Jackson had a heck of a week. I thought Frank Jackson had a really, really good week um, in two very tense, very close games. I thought he did a nice job of controlling. He didn't have any... He had zero turnovers against UNC. Zero. Zero turnovers. He hit big three-pointers in both games. Um, uh, You know, it defies conventional wisdom that would say, how on earth could you not pick Grayson Allen or Luke Kennard? But I'm getting sick of always picking Grayson Allen and Luke Kennard. (laughs) So... So yeah. I thought I'm, Jason, I'm, but I thought that
1: you have that,
0: that your rule is that you just pick Luke Kennard every week.
2: Yeah, it it has seemed that way. Although lately I've been picking a lot of Grayson Allen. I've been loving his playmaking and the such and and I really came close to picking Grayson Allen. Um, you know, like I said, he had five big assists I thought, really nice assists against Clemson and and he was uh unbelievable. Best best game of the season against UNC. But I'm being weird, I'm being strange, I'm picking one of the guys off the bench. I thought the bench was very, very important this week. And so I'm going Frank Jackson.
1: All right, Donald. I will take a a page from Jason's normal playbook, and I will go with Luke Kennard. Uh, 20 points against UNC, 25 huge points against Clemson, the only player in double figures for us uh, against the Tigers. Uh, I think he played wonderfully during both games, and because of his consistent uh, play this week, uh, he is my player of the week. So
0: Grayson Allen's not going to get any votes this week. Which is a shame because he had a really strong week. But I'm going to take Jason Tatum for his play down the stretch against UNC. I thought that he obviously showed a lot on offense. Also, is improving every game as a defender and his block or not his block his his dunk against Kennedy Meeks uh, was pretty ferocious and deserved an and one and he didn't get the and one. So I want to give him a player of the week shout out for for that. Um, by, by the way, take away anything. By the way, yeah. Jason
2: Tatum, 19 points. Nine rebounds, five assists against and two block shots against UNC. Whew. Yeah, Boom. So, that's filling it up. Pretty good. <laughs> that's filling it
0: yeah, up. He, Bad stuffer. he had a he had a he had a pretty strong day. So um so I'll take that in his in his first game in the in the Duke UNC rivalry. So
2: yeah, and he, was, he showed uh, a little bit of emotion. He showed some emotion yeah. that game as well. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely.
0: Uh, all right, let's move to parting shots. I know that there's a lot kind, there's a lot of little things that we want to unpack. Um so I think each of us has has multiple parting shots we want to hit on this week. So let let's go through those quickly. Uh Jason, why don't you go ahead? Why don't you share one and that we'll we'll do one round and then do a second round.
2: Okay, so my first parting shot is going to be, oh my god, Northwestern's gonna make the tournament. And we've done this before as a parting shot, but I'm so excited for them. Uh they beat Wisconsin at Wisconsin. Um over the weekend, I mean, that's really impressive. Wisconsin was ranked in the top ten. I, I I should have looked it up. I think the last time Northwestern beat a team ranked in the top ten was never. Um, <laughs> they may have done it once before. I I don't even know. But it's it's really real. They're playing good ball. They're they're doing it. By the way, their leading scorer uh, has mono or something like that. So the you know once that guy comes back, they're going to be even better. Um, uh, they uh they've won 19 games. They're 19 and six. Uh, 8-4 and in the Big Ten. Um, You know, Northwestern has never, ever, ever in their history won more than 20 games. They've won 20, but they've never won more than 20, and I think you can mark it down. They're going to find their way to at least two more wins this season. They're going to set a school record for wins. They are also going to make the NCAA tournament. I mean, am I jinxing them? If they lose six, seven games in a row, they they won't make the NCAA tournament. But as long as they, like, beat Rutgers at home, they're going to make the NCAA tournament. Um... And it's and it's just impressive and amazing and and Chris Collins deserves all the praise in the world. Friend of the podcast, Chris Collins. We've mentioned this before. He was a guest on our show in the past, and he's he's fabulous and wonderful, and uh, you know a, a great member of the Duke coaching tree. Um, I, I can't say it enough. Northwestern's never ever 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 made the NCAA tournament, and they're going to do it this year. Um, and I know that. Um, I know that Mark Few at Gonzaga, and I know that um, uh, Scott Drew at Baylor are going to get probably all the Coach of the Year votes this year, and no one's going to pay attention, but um, uh, Chris Collins is the Coach of the Year. Chris Collins is the Coach of the Century for um, getting the worst program, the worst power conference program in history to the NCAA tournament. Congrats to Chris. I, I, I'm jinxing you by saying it early, but it's going to happen. It's. A, I think it's a I done won. deal at this point.
0: My, uh, my boss at my day job is a, is a big Wisconsin fan, and I warned her last week that uh, Northwestern's playing better this year, and she was like, oh, no, Northwestern's never good. Like, don't worry about that. So I got to give her a little grief this morning about that. Donald, uh, let's go with your first parting shot.
1: So my first parting shot is uh, Duke-centered. Um, Mason Plumley, who was on the Portland Trailblazers, Blazers, uh, was traded to the Denver Nuggets uh, over the weekend for Yusuf Nurkic. And a protected 2017 first round draft pick. Uh, I believe the Portland Trailblazers also gave away a 2018 second round draft pick. So I believe, if this uh, memory serves, uh, I now am the only podcast member who does not have a Duke player uh, playing for the team in their city. Uh, Sam has now inherited a Plumlee, uh, and I'm and Jason has like two or three. I think he has Dunleavy and a couple other guys uh, on the on the Hawks. Uh, the Wizards are lacking, so. Uh, Hopefully this is a good move for Plumlee. He, I thought he'd been playing very well uh, for the Portland Trail Blazers. Uh, not quite certain what led for them to uh, want to make a uh, trade him away, uh, but I think the, dugget, the Nuggets are going to benefit greatly from him uh, being on the team. Uh, hopefully, Sam, you will be able to see him a couple times in person. And Washington Wizards, you were on the clock. Uh, I think you need a
2: Duke player now, so I can go watch games. I, I'll, I'll tell you by the way. I was going to say really quick I'll tell you why Portland traded him it was two reasons. One is uh, he his rookie contract it comes up at the end of this year. He'll be a uh, the luxury free agent. tax. I did remember
1: that one. The luxury tax. Yeah,
2: and and they are they are in bad shape on the salary cap and um someone is going to pay Mason well above $10 million um because he's one of the he's one of the best. He's a rim protector. He, he's efficient on offense, you know, he scores really well around the basket, and he, you know, it's between him, Draymond Green, and Al Horford for the best passing big man in the NBA. He may be the best passing big man in the NBA. He's going to make, I don't know, $10, $12, 15000000 million a season um, after this year, and Portland just didn't want to take on that kind of a, a, a salary um, for a team that's already sort of salary cap strapped. Uh, and by the way, they're really happy to get that, uh, that first round draft pick Portland is stocking up on first round draft picks in what's expected to be a very, very, very deep draft.
1: I think they have three now
2: for the first round next year. Yeah, they do. And they're, uh, my bet is they'll be moving those picks um, either to move up or, uh, uh, you know, to, to get players or, or who knows what, but, but they're going to be a player. They're going to be a player on draft day.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm excited that, that I finally get a Duke player here in Denver. I actually had posted something in the forum a couple of days ago related to a It was was some discussion about NBA players, but how in the nearly six years that I've lived here, we haven't had a Duke player yet, and there are normally like 15 guys in the league from our university, so um, the odds said that that it had to happen eventually, so now I finally have Mason Plumlee here in town. I think think the last Duke guy who played uh, for the Nuggets was Sheldon Williams, and that was uh, quite a number of years ago now, so um, very cool. I actually mentioned this to you guys. I, I realized this morning that the Warriors are playing here tonight, so um i'm gonna try to go to the game because I guess that'll be mason's debut and and i 'll get to see the Warriors. um uh, but i need to I need to find some tickets for that uh, unless unless we get the podcast out quickly and and someone who has Denver nuggets tickets wants to hook me up um so yeah that, that that's pretty cool about Evan Plumley here in uh, in Colorado uh I was gonna just quickly mention that i'm going speaking of attending uh sporting events featuring duke guys i'm I get to uh, go to a Duke lacrosse game this weekend here in Denver because um, Duke men's lacrosse is coming out to play University of Denver, my other alma mater, um, which is uh, which is really exciting because we don't normally get a lot of Duke games uh, way out west out here. So uh, excited to go to that. There's going to be some kind of pre-game event um, with some of the members of the program and stuff like that. So um, very excited to go see uh, the men's lacrosse team. Jason, did you have another another point you wanted to to bring up?
2: Uh, you mean another parting shot? Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, so, Bubba Cunningham, the athletic director at North Carolina, I'm gonna try and keep this my is, blood from James, boiling. This is is anyway. this your
0: favorite subject? <laughs>
2: it, it might be. It may be. I, I'm. I'm gonna try and remain calm. Check my pulse. Bubba Cunningham, the athletic director at North Carolina, gave an interview to CBS Sports, um, in which he laid out um, the the defense for uh, Carolina's horrific, terrible. Uh, academic fraud that went on for two decades uh, or more. Um, and his defense can best be summed up by this quote. Again, these are Bubba Cunningham's words, athletic director of UNC. He said, quote, is this, an ac- is this academic fraud? Yes. By any normal normal person standards, yes. But is it academic fraud by the NCAA's definition? I think not. So his defense comes down to semantics. He says that Carolina has been overcharged. Uh this is if there are little kids listening please cover their ears. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them it is Tell ridiculous <laughs> the hubris that Carolina is displaying here is is absurd. Of course it's academic fraud. Everyone knows it's academic fraud. Bubba admits that it's academic fraud. He says, is this academic fraud? Yes. And then he goes on to say, but we shouldn't be punished for it because of these semantics within the rule book. Hey, how about justice? How about fair play? How about actually doing your job and educating the athletes? Um, was Carol Cunningham no- even
0: at UNC when this was all happening?
2: No, he was not. He was not. He, and, he I mean, inherited, like, you he inherited think, this giant you think pile. They of.
0: In, right. They bring in a new athletic director, and he can't even stand up and say, you know, all right. I'm here now. New regime. We're gonna clean things up. We're gonna, you know, um, we're gonna celebrate, you know, finally getting on track and doing things the right way, um, and not just to keep harping on all that
1: same stuff. He's a designated fall guy. He, he's the one that's like, yo, I got, I got the mouthpiece. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and just go ahead and toe the party line right here. The, like the, there's no accountability.
2: The worst part about this scandal, I think, and and believe me, the academic fraud and centering it in the African American Studies department um you know and and the and the inherent racism involved in that uh, th- those are truly horrific horrible terrible things but the worst part about it is the hubris that carolina has displayed the the inability to recognize that what they did wrong except that they made terrible horrible awful mistakes um and and that they should face Stiff, stiff punishment for this. Look at the difference in how they have responded and the way Penn State responded to to the the Sandusky, you know, child abuse, ch- child rape, whatever you want to call it, scandal. Um, Penn State, uh, Penn State fell on the sword. Penn State said, "NCAA hit us with whatever you got, and we will accept it." They said, "We have done something horrible and terrible and horrific, and and." And we deserve to be punished. And Carolina's attitude is the opposite. Carolina says, we've done something horrible, terrible, and horrific, but you're not allowed to punish us. It's unconscionable. It's it's shameful. And I'm like at a loss for words. The NCAA cannot punish these guys hard enough. Um, And by the way, I should point out, um, North Carolina has not been charged with academic fraud. Um, Bubba Cunningham says, uh, it doesn't fall under the NCAA's definition of academic fraud. That's because the NCAA doesn't define academic fraud. Caroline has been charged with improper benefits because they provided classes to these athletes specifically to maintain eligibility. That's improper benefits. That's not academic fraud. Um, SACS, the the accreditation folks, those are the ones who said it was academic fraud. Um, The NCAA never even said that. So Bubba Cunningham's defense doesn't even make any sense in that regard. Uh, and by the way, the last thing I have on this, and I think I actually did a fairly decent job of maintaining my cool. Um, uh, the Forbes magazine, um, for some reason, you wouldn't think so, a business magazine. But Forbes, there are a number of columnists for Forbes who have just been beating the drum on this incessantly. They are, I don't know why, but they definitely hate uh, what Carolina did. And so one of the columnists for Forbes magazine, uh, B. David Ridpath is his name. Um, Wrote a column, an article about Bubba Cunningham, and uh, after Bubba said the words, you know, "Yes, this is academic fraud," but not by the NCAA's definition, um, uh, this columnist for Forbes said, "Excuse me while I pick my jaw up the floor, off the floor." Um, Bubba Cunningham believes this is not academic fraud. I guess that's the same as O.J. Simpson believing he'll still find the real killers, which I thought was a pretty amusing line.
0: Are we, are we are we feeling? Uh... Are we, are we feeling, are we feeling good, Jason?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I feel better. having gotten that off my chest. There you the NCAA go. All can't, right. they, they can't hit these guys hard enough. They got to just kill them. They got to kill them.
1: <laughs> go for it, Donald. All right. So my second parting shot, uh, I, I'm sure all of you guys out there have seen this at this point. Uh, LaMelo ball, who is the younger brother of UCLA's Lonzo ball. Uh, he had a hell of a game the other night. He had 92 points. Uh, in a 146-120 victory uh, for his high school team, Chino Hills. Uh, it should note be noted that the middle, there's three brothers. There's three ball brothers. There's Lonzo. Uh, the middle brother is leangelo Ball. Um, and then there's LaMelo Ball. Uh, LiAngelo uh, scored 72 points in a game earlier this year uh, and did not play in this game due to an injury. And they had just come off their first loss in about a year and a half uh, against Oak Hill the previous weekend. LaMelo Ball decided he was going to go off for 92. Uh, 63 points in the second half, 41 in the fourth quarter. Uh, let me tell you his stat line, at least for his shots. He was 7 for 22 from three-point range. He was 30 of 39 from two-point range. And if you guys watch some of these highlights, there's some that are a couple minutes long. There's some as long as like 20 minutes long that kind of document this whole thing. Uh, a lot of the fourth quarter points were on layouts where he kind of cherry-pricked on offense. Kind of, kind of, there was, I mean, if you see one, there's one, it's really funny. There's one video where it's like four minutes long. And I think in that four minutes, it just shows what he did for four minutes. I think he crossed half court twice. And and when I say crossed, I mean, his foot was on the line. uh, And then as soon as his foot crossed the line, he was getting the ball back and going in for a layup. uh, And it was, it was kind of funny. I was, I was debating with my friends about whether it was a good game or whether it was kind of a show of, On sportsmanship, uh, I know the other team was complaining that uh, Chino Hills was fouling uh, every single time down the court in the fourth quarter so that they would give LaMelo Ball more chances to uh, score more points and get to 80 or 90. Um, But to his credit, to his credit, he had seven assists. Um, A lot of those were in the first quarter. He had a couple of, uh, you know, he threw a couple alley-oops because, again, he was just barely crossing half court uh, for defense. But um, I, yeah, it, it's kind of weird. I don't know how you take this. Uh, he, he's he's a sophomore. He's verbally a, a committed to go to UCLA. Um, as is uh, Leangelo Ball. Um, uh, it does not appear that the three brothers will ever play with each other in college. Um, they're all figured to be one and duns.
2: And this is something where Lamella oh, Ball. Whoa whoa, is the whoa, second whoa, time. whoa, 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 Le, whoa! Leangelo is not that good.
1: But they expect Le- him to be gone by the time that. That Lamelo shows up, Um, that is the worst. He made
2: he may declare, and uh, but the NBA NBA isn't very interested in him.
1: I mean, that's that's neither here nor there. But as the saying goes, they are not expecting Lonzo. I'm sorry, Lamelo and Le'Angelo. Lonzo won't be there anymore. Lonzo won't be there. He's gone. Lonzo won't be there. That's for sure. (laughs) He should be. He had a hell of a game the other night against Oregon, um, in their epic comeback victory, which was after. Uh, the and C game. Uh, but one thing also, you guys uh, probably have heard a little mellow ball because he is the, the ball brother that earlier, uh, I guess late in December, they had a, a holiday tournament where he inbounded, they inbounded the ball to him behind half court. He pointed at the half court line and drilled the three from half court with uh, the nearest defender about 40 feet away from him. Uh, so that, that made the rounds uh, then and now 92 points, the second highest total in California state basketball history um that is it's a feat no matter what how you want to slice it how you want to break it down 92 points is a feat so uh shout out Lamella Ball and uh he's definitely going to be a player to watch uh in high school over the next couple of years
0: in case you were concerned that time wasn't a flat circle uh, I saw a comment from Taylor King uh former former Duke basketball player Taylor King who if anyone remembers um will laugh also at this comment that, I'll I'll paraphrase just that he said something about how uh, he's never seen worse defense in a, in a high school basketball game than to let uh, somebody score 92 points. Um, I imagine you guys remember Taylor King. I imagine other people remember Taylor King at Duke. Uh, that's a funny comment. And yeah. I, will, I, will leave, I will leave that there. Uh, anything else from, uh, but, from either of you before we wrap up here?
2: So, so on the balls, um, uh, I, I, th- this was like some of the most <laughs> shameful cherry picking I've ever seen. It was it, it was, was ridiculous. Funny. Like I mean, literally, if you if, there's a lot of videos.
1: If you he go to embarrassed, like, there was one. I'm telling you, it's a four minute video where it just show It was just a cam on him in the fourth quarter. And I tell you, when I tell you, he maybe crossed half court twice. And when I say half court, he put his foot across the line, and as soon as that foot touched, he was turning around and getting the ball on offense. Uh, it was it was like hilarious. And you know, some people are like, oh well, I saw he he drove. You know. Broke down three people. Yeah, he did all that too. But thirty for thirty-nine from two point, these like almost every single one of them were layups. They weren't where he was breaking down on the dribble. There was no half court offense because both teams combined scored two hundred and sixty-six points in a 32-minute basketball game. There there was no half court offense uh whatsoever. There was no setting up and running shell or running motion or whatever plays you want to call. There weren't even plays on, on out of bounds. They were just getting the ball and going. I pray for uh, the stamina of those referees because I know they probably ran about 10 miles in that game.
2: You know, and by the way, Donald, um, uh, regarding LiAngelo, he he's not even considered a top 200 recruit. He's barely a, a top 200 recruit. I don't think he'll be going to the NBA very quickly. Lamelo's a top 20 recruit um, in the class of 2019. I mean, it's still early. You don't know how guys are going to develop in the such, right. but um, I'll say this, the, the dude hasn't... He's not learned to play any defense. That's for sure. He
0: can always he can always learn defense at UCLA.
2: Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs>
0: mm. All right, um, I think that's enough from us this week. We'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Just just as a uh, sort of a second reminder, we said it at the top. Uh, happy birthday again to Coach K, who turned seventy today. Uh, may there be many, many, many more years of happiness and 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 good health uh, for him. So. For Donald Wine, for Jason Evans, I am Sam Klein. This has been Episode 71 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home.